that bumper that you saw is not my bumper. That bumper is a way to, to remind you that we start a new series next week. How many of you recognize and realize that we live in a crazy mixed up world? We do, we really do. And there are sometimes, even as a Christian, I get discouraged because I look around and I, I say, where is the gospel? Where, where is the gospel penetrating? Where is the gospel at work? Because all my images, the images in my head, the images around us in this culture flood us with such negativity. And again, I'm so glad. That's why we need the gathering of the body of Christ. We need to be reminded that God is at work. We need to he hear from our friends and missionaries around the world that see God changing hearts and lives, don't we? And we need to hear your stories too because you have a story. You have a story of how God is touching people through you. Tell it, talk about it. That's the encouragement that we need because God is at work. God is not asleep. In this crazy mixed up world, he has a plan to bring about redemption. He's already installed his king in heaven. Jesus is already on the throne. He's already won. And so I'm very excited and encouraged uh, to, to listen and hear that sermon series that Pastor Mike will, will uh, begin next Sunday. But with that in mind, I do have, uh, I, I have an opportunity to preach what I call a gap sermon. But it really isn't a gap sermon because God's word doesn't just fill gaps. God's word, we need God's word every single day, don't we? We need to live our lives by it. I have a friend who likes to share his faith using two simple questions, and I'm gonna give you an opportunity to practice these two simple questions, maybe one of the simple questions. I say that because the second question is rather confrontational. In fact, I would be willing to bet that some of you may be embarrassed by your answer, and I don't want to embarrass you in front of friends or family. Here's the first question. If he's meeting someone for the first time, uh, he will typically ask them, what do you do for a living? So this is what I want you to do. I want you to take like 10, 15 seconds, turn to the person to the, your left or to your right or behind you, and each of you just engage one another very quickly. What do you do for a living? Introduce yourself and then tell the person what you do for a living. Go. And see, you can do this whether you're at any of the other campuses. You can, I'm hoping that you're doing this at PVC and at, at Indiana. Okay, very good. It's good to hear you guys engage. Uh, by the way, not to put you on the spot, but if you have the ability to engage like that in conversation, then God can use you to share the gospel. Because honestly, that's where sharing the gospel begins, just engage with people. Whether you're standing in a grocery store line, whether, regardless of what you're doing, just be willing to engage. And that is a very non-threatening conversational question, isn't it? And here's why it works. Because everybody is doing something. Most people have a job. And if they don't have a job, they're doing something. And we like to talk about it. People like to talk about themselves. So get people talking. Then comes the second question. What are you living for? What do you do for a living? What are you living for? I, I'm not gonna have you practice that 
Because as I think about myself in, 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 in the context of a gathering of God's people, there are times I'm a little embarrassed by my response. There are times, and yes, pastors get distracted the same way every other believer does with the world, the flesh, and the devil. I get distracted on the things that are not important, the things that don't mean anything ultimately. But typically, when you ask that question, if you get to the point of, of being free to ask that question, there is quite a moment of silence when you ask somebody that question. Did, did you have a moment of silence in your head as I asked you that question? I hope you did. But it's a good one because just as we all do something for a living, we all live for something. Even if we don't know what it is, even if we can't put our finger on it, we all live for something, don't we? And it's good to pause and ask ourselves, what are we living for? Some of us live for money. Some of us don't think we live for money, but we do. Some of us don't think that we live for, for the applause of men, but we do. Some of us don't think that we live for approval. Some of us, maybe we live for fame. What are you living for? As you ponder that, those two questions, I want to take a trip back in time to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was a place that Jesus often frequented as he was moving back and forth from north to south. It, it is a little Roman city located north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's dominated by a huge rocky cliff. cliff. Uh, that, that, you could, that's a noticeable landscape from wherever you're at as you're approaching Caesarea Philippi. At the base of that cliff is a stream that flows on its way to the Jordan River. And it's a critical moment for Jesus. As we have seen in the first five chapters of the book of Mark, Jesus has created a stir. Who is he? The, the disciples are even in awe. Who is this person? And, and just thinking about the first five books of, uh, first five chapters of Mark, he, he, he still so storms by talking to him. He, he controls and has authority over demons and he can send them into pigs. He can heal diseases. A woman with an issue of blood for 12 years, healed. He can raise the dead, Jairus' daughter. Who is this guy? What, what is he here for? Why is he here? After an early wave of popularity, we do have a nation that is becoming more and more divided. True, he has a wide following among the common folks. It's also true that among the rich and the powerful, uh, opinion is a slowly starting to grow against him. And pretty soon, that opposition is going to drown out all common sense. Knowing all this and knowing that it would be the end of, it, it would end in his death, Jesus gathered his disciples in this quiet place to draw out from them a deeper commitment than they had yet given. Jesus was with his disciples how many years? Three. There, there is good speculation that that first year they probably just spent a lot of time watching. And then there was that moment he sent them out two by two. They started doing some of the ministry. At some point, Jesus is gonna turn the reins over to these 12 men, uh, 11. And, and he, he pulls them aside and he calls them to, to greater commitment. 
Why is that important? Because Jesus is, is pretty soon going to set his face to Jerusalem intent on one thing, and that's to die. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew 16. Perhaps uh, some of you are there already since Pastor Kevin reminded us before I came up. It's here that Jesus asks a famous question. And so let's read and follow along in the scriptures. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, yeah, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's not the important question. That's an import, that is an important question, but that's not really the important question that he's driving to in this passage. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And by the way, just to take an aside, I think a lot, there, there has been a lot of confusion throughout church history about that statement right there. It's not Peter that Jesus is going to be building the church on. It's Peter's confession that he's gonna be building his church on. The confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. So let's, let's get that straight. But, but Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You know, Peter just goes from a great moment in the sun to a horrible moment here. And it's, it, Jesus, Jesus just doesn't smack him down once. He smacks him down twice. Because I think that his comments after Peter opposes him Really, Peter's opposition is the context for Jesus' response. Listen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Peter was trying to save his life. Peter was trying to save Jesus' life in that instance. For what will it profit a man? And I think this is the question that Jesus really wanted his disciples to wrestle with. And I think it's a question that we need to wrestle with today as well. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think Bob Dylan probably could have summed up Jesus' words a little shorter than Jesus did. But Bob Dylan said in one of his songs, you're gonna have to serve somebody 
Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And on this point, Bob Dylan and Jesus agree, you are going to have to serve somebody. All of us need to wrestle with who we're going to serve in this life. Who will you serve? Are you here to serve yourself? Are we here to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I'm not going to assume that all of you within the sound of my voice are serving Jesus. I think the scriptures bear, bear, bear witness to the fact that even in the church, the wheat and the tares grow up together. Even in the church, there are those who are true followers of Jesus and those who are not. So no matter where you are, where you are I, I think that we all have to wrestle with who we're gonna serve. I know there are some of you here who are sitting on the fence. Some of you, the verdict is still out. Perhaps the life of Jesus is the best answer to the question, who will you serve? So let's take a look at his career. He was born in an obscure village in an out-of-the-way province of of the Roman Empire. He never went to college, nor did he have any professional training. He was a tradesman. He never held public office. He never wrote a book. He never had a wife or children. His closest friends were working class. He felt at home among the outcasts of society. His ministry consisted of preaching in the countryside, teaching in the synagogues, answering difficult questions, healing the sick, and casting out demons. His opponents openly accused him of consorting with the devil. He made many powerful enemies by exposing religious corruption. His adversaries eventually captured him. They convicted him in a kangaroo court and they put him to death. What do you think of Jesus? By most modern standards, he would be considered a failure. He never made it to the top. If ever a man seemed to waste his life, it was Jesus. But consider this. After more than 2,000 years, his words are remembered and repeated around the world. His followers number in the billions and can be found in nearly every country on the planet. And, and, and I must say, even Jesus' own words, that this gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. There's still work to be done, isn't there, friends? There's still, still people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, which seemed to be a tragedy, has become the means by which we can be reconciled to God. It's, it's why it doesn't make sense to Jewish people wait a minute, cursed cursed is everyone who's on a tree. That's why I've been in public settings where I was standing behind, where people speaking were standing behind pulpits with crosses on them in the context of Jewish folks being in there and they asked that that the cross be covered. The cross is an offense to the Jews because Jesus was a curse on the tree. And I say to myself, he had to be a curse. He had to become a curse for you and me so that he could take the curse away from us. 
His whole mission on earth, which seemed to be a failure, was a huge success. So much so that here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter two. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in Philippians two, we know where that passage, where that, what this passage follows. It follows that great passage of Jesus coming down out of heaven and taking on our nature, becoming like us yet without sin, humbling himself to the point of death. And when you go to that point in your life, this is the reward. Your name gets exalted. It's at your name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. It's not just those who've already, are followers of Jesus whose name, they, will, they won't, even if you don't follow Jesus, excuse me, you're gonna confess his name. You're not gonna do it willingly, but you're gonna confess his name. One of these days, you will confess the name of Jesus. You will admit that he is Lord. You will admit that he's king of kings, but you won't stay with him. Don't, don't wait to the end to make that decision to follow Jesus. Don't, don't wait to the very last moment to make the decision whom you will serve. Make the decision today if you've not chosen to follow Jesus. Make the decision today and let the Spirit convince you. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. You let the Spirit take care of the rest. Submit your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit is gonna come in and take residence and is gonna help you figure it all out. And even when you think you've figured it out, what do you figure out? You haven't got it all figured out. There are some things, and I've heard it from this pulpit before, from this stage before, there are some things in the scriptures that we have to be comfortable with the tension because we can't figure it out. We're never gonna figure it out. I think Jesus made it clear why he did what he did when he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here it is, very simply, if you try to save your life, in the end you will lose it. If you try to save your own life by whatever means you believe you need to create to save it, you'll lose it. But if you dare to lose it for Jesus' sake, in the end you save it. Jesus himself is the supreme example of this principle. You know, I think there may be another way at looking at this whole question of losing and saving our lives that may perhaps connect better with us 21st century believers. That is to ask the question, is your life a career or is your life a mission? Is your life a career or is your life a mission? I think there is a vast difference between these two concepts. When you boil down all of the definitions of career and missions from the dictionary, online, Wikipedia, of course, Wikipedia, everybody contributes something. But when you boil it all down, here's the essence of the difference. A career is something you choose for yourself. A mission is something chosen for you by someone else. There's a huge difference between living for your career and living on mission. 
The Bible never talks about having a career. It talks about a calling. And I would say that calling and mission are often the same, synonymous. Having a career is not a biblical concept. I think it's a human concept. And I'm not talking about a theology of work because even a theology of work was prior to the fall, God told Adam and Eve, take care of what I've given you. Having a mission is a biblical concept though. Being on mission is a biblical concept. And it's not that believers can't and don't have careers. We do, some of us are painters, doctors, bankers, nurses, teachers, police officers, farmers, and you name it. But here's the difference. The world lives for their careers. The people of God don't, or at least they shouldn't, live for their career. When your career is central in your life, you are career-driven and career-minded while you climb the career ladder. You take a job and leave it two years later because it's a good career decision. You break significant relationships in one place and move across the country because your career demands it. Everything is calculated to get you someday to that place called the top. When you get there, your career will be complete and the world will applaud your achievements and you'll probably be asked to write some books on your success. I'm gonna suggest that being career-minded in this sense is precisely what Jesus meant when he said, he who would save his life will lose it. Your career may well keep you from fulfilling your mission in life. And your mission may never make much sense as a career. Your career is really the answer to the first question. And we're really comfortable with that. We're really comfortable about talking about what we do for a living. And I especially find that in the context of men, being in men's groups. I find it really interesting that sometimes in men's groups, when you reach out and shake someone's hand, the first thing they say is not their name, but what they do. Hi, I'm a pastor, and especially in pastor's groups. I'm a pastor. My church has 200 people on Sunday morning. I don't, I don't care about that. Other lives being changed? But guys really struggle with that. I think sometimes women, you get women in a group, they don't talk about their careers first. They talk about relationships. They talk about their kids. They talk about family members. Guys, they try to create this pecking order of performance. Mission is the answer to the second question. What are you living for? Your career is a ladder to climb. Your mission is a journey you're taking. Your career might take you to the top. Your mission could lead you to the cross. Your career makes you a professional. Your mission makes you a disciple. Your career is about the here and now. Your mission is about eternity. You know, if you're just here to eat, sleep, go to college, 
get a degree, get married, get a job, have some children, climb the ladder, make some money, buy a summer home, retire gracefully, grow old and die, then what's the point? You know, there is a whole book of the Bible devoted to shooting holes through that philosophy. You know what it's called? Ecclesiastes. And, and who of all people could be, would be the expert on, on trying and succeeding in almost anything because money was no object for Solomon? And, and that's what Ecclesiastes says. I tried everything under the sun, but what was it? Vanity. It was empty. It was hollow. And what was his conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes? Fear God. Fear God. This is what drives the world. If that's all there is to life, then you and I are really no different than those who don't believe in God. During the communist years, many Christians were taken to prison camps and psychiatric hospitals and were made to suffer because of their faith. Some of those believers spent 25 years plus behind bars for the sake of the gospel. A few of them came out and wrote books about their experiences, but most of those who suffered for God did not write any books. They viewed their time in prison as part of their mission with God. Their attitude was, if God can use me more effectively in prison, then that's where I will serve him. (laughs) How does that phrase sit on your mind right now? Would that be your first choice? Would that be your conclusion? I think sometimes we are so easily and quickly, we so easily and quickly complain about inconvenience when in reality, our circumstances might be divinely appointed by God to bring him glory. Do you think about your life that way? You know, maybe, maybe these folks that got whisked away into these prison camps and psychiatric hospitals initially had that, that visceral response of, no, I'm not going there. But eventually they realized God had something bigger for them in their experience. We, we do need to become more heavenly-minded people, don't we? We do need to start seeing all of our circumstances and situations from God's perspective because he really does have a divine plan for all our circumstances and situations regardless of how difficult they are. Don't run from those difficult problems and situations and circumstances. God might be using them to change your circumstance to change people around you, to change you. Let me put it this way. Jesus calls his followers to be totally sold out to his kingdom. That applies to all Christians all the time, not just full-time Christian workers. Suppose you are an electrical engineer or an attorney or a nurse or a doctor or a medical assistant. Suppose you're a teacher Here's God's job description for you. You are a missionary, cleverly disguised as an engineer or or an attorney or a teacher or a police officer or a mother or a medical assistant or a doctor. It's not wrong to have a career and do well. 
And I don't want any of you to hear me saying that. It's not wrong to have a career and do well by the world's standards. God needs those and uses those resources to advance his kingdom, doesn't he? Nor is it sinful to move across the country chasing a job. But motivation is everything. Two people may follow the same career path and both may end up at the top. Yet one may be living solely for career while the other sees life as a divinely ordained mission from God. One has lost his or her life and the other has saved it. Just as Jesus said, ask yourself, did Jesus have a career? No. He had a mission from God to be the savior of the world. Nothing he did makes sense from a career standpoint, does it? After all, the very thing that he, the very confession that he built the church on, the confession that he is the Christ, what did he tell his disciples not to do? Don't share that with anybody. Maybe that's why Judas lost his brain. Because maybe Judas was thinking from a career perspective that this was not good marketing, Jesus. This isn't the way you take over the Romans. Yet by his death, he reconciled the world to God. Was he a success or a failure? John Piper sums up this idea very well in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read it, I I highly encourage you to read it. Don't waste your life. And I quote, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort, comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to, foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world, unquote. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In one of his sermons, Ravi Zacharias tells the story of a gentleman by the name of Robert Jaffrey. He came from a wealthy family and in fact was heir to a large newspaper fortune. You know, back then it was either newspaper or oil. When he was a young man, he learned the Chinese language and was offered a large salary by Standard Oil if he would forego his missionary career and work for them. He refused. So they doubled their salary offer. He refused again. They cabled him with this message, Robert Jaffrey, at any cost. Pretty appealing, isn't it? Tempting, wouldn't it be? Standard oil, at any cost? He cabled them back, and this is what he said. Your salary is big. Your job is too small. He spent 35 years as a missionary in China and helped translate the Bible into Cantonese. When World War II broke out, he and other missionaries were placed in internment camps. He died there two weeks before the end of the war. Did he waste his life? 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Probably a lesser known missionary by the name of C.T. Studd said it this way, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One day all of us will pass from this life into the presence of God. What will we say on that day? More importantly, what will the Lord say to us on that day? He gives us a hint. He says to his disciples, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Are you doing things that are career significant or mission significant? Are you doing things that are worldly significant or kingdom significant? The martyred missionary Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. David Hunt, in his book, An Urgent Call to a Serious Faith, puts it this way, the choice we face is not, as many imagine, between heaven and hell. Rather, the choice is between heaven and this world. A fool would exchange hell for heaven, but only the wise will exchange this world for heaven. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it in the end. If you lose your life for Jesus' sake, in the end, you will save it. Which leads us to the last point in the map. If you live for your career, what difference will it make 10 seconds after you die? If you spend your life in the service of the king, the road may not be easy, but 10,000 years from now, you won't regret your decision. Life is not a dress rehearsal. We only get one life to do whatever we're going to do on planet Earth. Soon enough, sooner than we think, our moment in the sun will be over. Do you have a career or are you on mission with God? I think the answer to that question makes all the difference in the world. Do you have a career or are you on mission with God? If you've not surrendered your life to Jesus, I would urge you to do so today. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus but have been sidetracked by the world, the flesh and the devil, today is the day to repent. I'm gonna pose the questions I asked at the start of this message and ask you to ponder them again in the light of what God's word says. And I'm gonna say them and just pause and I, want them, I just want you to think them through. What do you do for a living? What are you living for? May God help us to live for Christ today and every day. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.